so much for checking out Sound and Process Episode 3. Uh, my name is Dan, and my guest for this episode is Nick Sanborn, who uh, otherwise is known as Made of Oak, who produces uh, as part of the duo Sylvan Esso, is a frequent collaborator with Chris Rosenau, is part of the trio Cedar AV. So there's a lot here, uh, and I'm really excited to dive in. Nick is a very sweet and funny and incredibly smart artist. Um, he is part of the online community Lines, uh, which is the forum for your rack module and grid instrument maker Monom, which uh, this podcast focuses exclusively on. Uh, for quick context, I first saw Sylvanesso at AV Fest, which is a festival that happens here in Chicago. And then I also recently saw Nick when he came through and played as Made of Oak um, at Shuba's. So uh, those things are referenced a couple of times up top. Also to Eric, who is part of Cedar AV with Nick and Nate, uh, goes under the name He Can Jog. Uh, so there is a little bit of cross-pollination there with other members of the forum. Uh, without further ado, this is my conversation with Nick Sanborn. Thank you so much for joining us. So I saw you live back when you guys played the Hideout Festival here in Chicago. Um, oh, yeah. And uh, after your show at Shuba's, I, I went back through my phone. And I was like, I'm pretty positive I have a video that I took specifically because of your dancing. Oh, this is, we're already going to derail this whole interview. <laughs> <laughs> That's the last mention of your dancing. But it was so dynamic for how sparse the setup is of just vocalist and then dude on laptop. It was like insanely engaging. Um, oh, thanks. That was the reason why I took the video was I was like, this, this is fucking great. Like they're doing so much with just being people rather than having to be surrounded by instrumentation. And that was also when I first started getting into like, you know, thinking about electronic production uh, and being nervous because I had had this like band background and I was like, well, oh man, I, I probably have to like try to do a ton of shit uh, to justify the laptop. Um, but watching you, I was like, oh, I don't have to at all. Dude, I think that's this insecurity we all have. Yeah. You know, I, I think that... And it's only dudes like you and me that that think that. You know, people who go to shows and don't make music don't think about that. I don't think they care at all. Yeah, yeah. And maybe I, I'm wrong about that, but I I don't I think that's real. I don't think they give a shit. Yeah, at uh, Shuba's, I thought that was that was a great show. Uh, oh, your performance, but also too, just like a really nice vibe from the people who came to watch. Yeah, the, I think this lucky thing happened with my little solo EP and the couple of tours I did with that so far where there's not really that much material to go on. Um, I mean, my EP is like 18, it's not even 20 minutes. It's like 18 minutes or something like that. Yeah. Um, but I'll do 45 or an hour every night. So uh, I think inherently the people who come to those shows are it's this self-selecting group of people that know they're going to hear stuff they've never heard and are coming to the show to do that right you know so and i i realized all of us it was it took doing the first couple of them to realize that i hadn't uh been in that position in a while i mean outside of like friends bringing their friends to a show of some you know any other band i've been in yeah uh but everyone at the show is like, oh, I'll, let's give this a shot and keep an open mind, you know, which yeah. is just like the luckiest position you can be in, I think, as a performer, because I don't know, you just get up there and you feel like you can do anything, you know, or it could go anywhere. And especially I think if you, if you set a tone that there's going to be a lot of different things happening right off the bat, mm -hmm. then it, 
it keeps everyone in that mindset immediately. Like if I if you get up there and and start off and with like you know whatever four on the floor everything for the first ten minutes, it's going to be tough to shift gears after that. But I think if you if you I love like rewarding well in my mind you know rewarding the adventurous person who like took a chance on the show by like doing a bunch of weird stuff right out right off the bat you know yeah because hopefully it it like subliminally keeps everybody in that state of mind of like oh anything could happen next so I guess I just wanted to get like the lay of the land on like how how did all these pieces kind of come together for you and where along the line did you stop worrying about fitting into a specific thing and we're just like cool I've got my voice this is a thing I'm going to chase regardless of whether or not it's going to work out well one first one weird thing is that I actually made that EP that was done before we finished well, I finished it just after we finished the Silver Nest record, but I wrote it all beforehand. And I really wanted it to come out before the record because I thought it would help contextualize uh, the stuff that I did on that record. Does that make sense? Like, I, I was like, oh, let's lay this groundwork of weirder shit and then, and then use kind of the lessons of that to make a pop record out of. Yeah. And, you know, and and uh, so so the the arc to, in my mind works in reverse. You know, um, but I, you know, I don't I don't know. I think that so I've always played in bands. I've been touring six months a year, more or less, since I was like twenty, and I'm thirty three now. Mm. Um, and in all sorts of different stuff, but I was always. Um, you know, kind of a sideman or, or, you know, I played piano and bass and I'd play those in kind of other people's bands, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and I'd write, write parts and we'd be, you know, there's varying degrees of, you know, dictatorship to, you know, socialist democracy. You know, there's so <laughs> many different gray areas of bands between those two things. Uh, and I've been in a lot of them. Um, but, uh, so I always felt involved, but I never felt like it was like mine, you know. Um, and then uh, that band you mentioned earlier, Headlights, when when that band finally broke up uh, in like 2009, maybe. Uh, I remember just having, you know, getting the phone call that those guys didn't want to do it anymore, uh, and sitting down and just being like pissed off Mm. uh and not at that like not at them but just at myself for um you know having another band i was in stop touring uh and being unable to do anything about it and i think i just immediately was like you know i just need to do something where i'm the only guy (laughs) and i think i hadn't been doing that for a long time because i was I didn't have any confidence in my ability to write anything but like bass lines, you know? Um, like I didn't think I was a songwriter really. I didn't think I had, I just was really insecure about, you know, writing all the shit myself or, you know, <laughs> being the only guy. Um, and I would guess that most kind of sidemen players uh, feel that way or like a, a certain personality type feels that way. Um, and so I just decided, you know what? I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna sit down. I'd always made like remixes and random stuff for friends under the name Made of Oak, and I was just like, I'm just gonna make a, sh- a set. I have to write a set, and then I have to figure out how I'm gonna play the set, uh, or do both at the same time. And then at least I'll be moving in the direction I want to be moving. If I start playing with another band, great. But like, then no matter what happens, I'll always be able to do my own thing. You know? Yeah. And, and I, it was just this, like, um, I just felt like I needed to grow up, you know, uh, and stop being a baby about it. Uh, and so then I just literally just let all my friends who promoted shows know that I wanted to get on a bill, which I thought would kind of force me to make more music, which is exactly what happened. So then I just started playing, (laughs) started getting asked to like be first to three on weird shows that we're touring through. Uh, and so I wrote a bunch of music kind of 
in a really stressful time. I was also in the middle of kind of figuring out that I needed to be out of a relationship I was in, mm-hmm. uh, which I'd been in for like seven years. So um, there was a lot of like, you know, like the fault lines were creaking under under my life. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and, uh, and yeah, and that was kind of all it really took. I think it was just, I, I made this decision of like, no, I know what I like and I know kind of what it sounds like when I make stuff on my own and I'm just going to do that. And I'm just going to sit around and make sounds until those sounds coalesce into a song. And then I'm just going to do that over and over again. <laughs> and I'm going <laughs> to play shows. And it kind of, uh, so I started doing that and it was like really, it was really all over the place at first. And then I kind of, it was like moving gave me perspective on so many things. Like I'd been sitting still and I didn't, I didn't know where I was. I don't, I'm sorry, mm. I'm going to get like, I don't mean to be poetic about it, but like, like I, the minute I started moving, I gained all this perspective on where I had been and what I was doing and on my own music even. I felt like, I was like, oh no, there's a through line here and I see what the through line is and the through line's me. Mm. Even when it's noisy or acoustic or, you know, all 808s or whatever, I can, I can see what the through line is now. And I think that was like a big um, moment of like a really confidence building kind of realization. Uh, Cause then I just, I stopped worrying about what it sounded like and just started following whatever the, the song seemed like it wanted to do. Because I knew that whatever I wrote would would sound like me, so I I didn't have to worry about like, oh well, it's not like I made this weird instrumental hip hop track, and then this is like, you know, a field recording mixed with a granulated acoustic guitar. Like these are two different records, and I'd be like, no, they're the same record. It's fine. It's all me. You know, like that realization just made me stop worrying about like genre anything. Yeah. Um, and I, and I think if I yeah, I'm just really grateful that. That that happened, and then, I, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but then so then that kind of whole life thing. Then I you know broke up with my girlfriend, moved away from Milwaukee, uh, which is where I'd been living for like ten years. Yeah, and came down here, which is where I was playing with Megaphone. I'd been coming here all the time, so it was just this obvious move. And then th- I did that all while I one of my one of the first shows I played was opening for Amelia's band, Mountain Man. Uh, right. And kind of over email, we had just started being like, hey, maybe we should like make music together. Um, and so that was all right at that same time. So like the minute I was like, I know what the fuck I'm doing. Like, why did I ever worry about this? Like, dude, maybe it'll be bad, but at least it'll sound like me. And then, the, then uh, suddenly I had a person who like actually wanted to make stuff with me and was like, you know, how as people say that and then they never send you anything. And then she was the first person who like the next day like sent me like three you know, acapella ideas she had recorded into her computer. So it was just like, you know, right when I was like feeling better about myself and my life, she kind of showed up and was like, hey, let's actually make stuff, you know? I think it's, it's, I don't know how else to describe it, but I'm sure there's been something like this in your life where you meet a person and within like, an hour or two of meeting them, you're like, oh, I'm probably going to know this person until I'm dead. <laughs> you know, like it was just that. It was just like this obvious, like, oh, we really get each other really quickly. Yeah. Um, and yeah, so we just like hung out and had a good time at the show and then they took off and she like sent me a song that she had written for Mountain Man to remix. And I couldn't figure out how to do it. So I just didn't do it. <laughs> well, it was one of those, it was one of those tough things because like Mountain Man is is really is very a cappella. So they sent me this a cappella song, which is usually if you're remixing something and they just send you the a cappella, like there's a whole other set of music that you're replacing. Right. And can make different decisions then. But this, the a cappella was the song, you know? So it kind of felt like anything I added to it was kind of subtraction by addition. And I was just mm-hmm. fucking it up. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then there was this click that happened uh, like a long time later where I was like, oh, I should process their, I should use their voices as the instruments, you know? And then that opened up this whole thing. Um, 
but yeah, she sent me that. I like wrote back like, Hey, cool later. Um, <laughs> and then I didn't see her for a year. And then mountain man played the same venue again the following summer. And so I just went and then we hung out and then she was like, what the fuck dude? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And then the next day it kind of all clicked into place and I sent it to her and then that became our first song, but it didn't, even then it took like another year for us to meet up. Uh, we were both kind of in turbulent parts of our life. Uh, uh, she was graduating from college and her band was figuring out if they were going to be uh, Feist's backup singers for like two or three years, mm. which is kind of a big, it was a, they were really having a tough time figuring out if they were going to do it or not. And I was in the middle of like, oh, I really need to break up with this person and like leave here. Um, and so, yeah, we met up like a long time later when I was out of that and she was on tour with Feist and one of the first things out of her mouth was like, hey, that remix went really well. We could do that again like on purpose this time. Thinking of collaborators, you also have worked a long time with Eric doing the Cedar AV stuff. Yeah, for Eric, Eric and Nate in that band are probably the people. I, no, no, undoubtedly the people I've been playing with the longest in my life. How did you all find each other? Um, when I was fifteen, I went to band camp and uh, met Nate at band camp. Nate went to a different high school, uh, but we both grew up in uh, kind of southeastern Wisconsin. And then me and Nate, and my buddy Spencer, started a band that was our band all through high school. Um, and we were just like. Nate's just a uh, uh, kind of wonderful, kind, severe weirdo uh, who has a like a brilliant musical brain, and he's a piano player, uh, but also uh, works uh, on his laptop and in electronics and stuff. Um, but we just we just hit it off right away on a shared love of like really goofy, weird music uh, and like art rock and stuff. Um, we were, we were both really into like, you know, they might be giants and Frank Zappa and, uh, Radiohead. Um, I don't know if you can imagine we met like right after okay computer came out. So it was like, you know, we were like, yeah, exactly. Um, but like Nate was the person who like, well, he wasn't, he didn't first play me them, but he was the first person to make me really like Autecker. Um, and so he kind of brought a lot of really kind of angular experimental music into my life. Uh, uh, and many, many videotaped recordings of uh, Conan O'Brien's Late Show. That was kind of the two main things we bonded over. Because <laughs> we both loved Late Night with Conan. Um, you know, back in the day when it was like fucking amazing, like when it was the craziest thing on television? Yeah. Like, yeah. Um, so yeah, so we just hit it off in, and when I, I met him when I was 15 and then, uh, so there was this, there's this jazz festival in Madison and a buddy of mine who I'd also met at band camp, this guy, Sam, uh, who's a drummer called me and was like, Hey, not that many people auditioned for like the, the high school all-stars band. So you should just audition and you'll probably get in because I think there's like one other bass player that auditioned. Like you should just do it. And so Sam uh, put together this group of his friends to audition for this like high school combo that would play at the Jazz Fest. And then uh, Eric got into that and Eric was one of Sam's friends. And so, uh, and Eric played trombone. Um, And we all just like immediately hit it off and had a great time putting together this jazz set. Uh, and then we stayed a band after that and kept getting kind of more and more weird and, you know, doing like, uh, like we did a square pusher cover, you know, <laughs> like we like got really into doing weird stuff or weird for us in high school, you know, sure. like we thought we were being really edgy, but we, you know, kind of weren't. Um, but yeah, so then me and Eric just really got to know each other from that. Uh, and then kind of the more we, me and Nate had continued playing together, uh, and, uh, Eric just kind of, I think 
came over one day or something while we were working on stuff together after our high school band had broken up. We, we all kind of went to college and then came back and kept playing together. Yeah. And uh, yeah, Eric just right away was kind of this perfect third person for, uh, for me and Nate to work with. And then our music started kind of weird poppy and got, just got really out really fast. And, it, and at this point, we're pretty much purely like an improvisation band. Mm. Um, so we just like record improvisations or like loosely structured compositions and then edit them down. Are these with afterwards. acoustic instruments or were electronics coming into play? Um, electronics came into play really early uh, cool. for us, but it was a lot of like, because uh, Eric was a like, has been a computer wizard since I've known him. He when I first got my laptop when I graduated high school, I literally went right over to Eric's house and he showed me how to use Sounded at sixteen to like cut up a sample and like turn it into a rhythm. Mm. So so he's always been like the guy who got it really quick. He just has this incredibly like beautiful analytical brain. Um, like right now, like he does all sorts of stuff, but you know he. He's been doing a lot of like unattended laptop pieces lately where he sets, you know, he makes a, a piece of, he makes a, a generative composition and then lets it run its course. Yeah. And just records like five versions of them and that's the, the piece. Um, <laughs> but he's always been like that. Like he's since, since the first time somebody gave him a computer, I think he's, he's been trying to figure out how it worked. Like the last show we did, he was doing live Python coding, you know? Like, oh, that's great. Yeah, I mean, he's just a wizard. But yeah, so he brought that into us right away, and then me and Nate, I think, kind of took to it after that. He was really kind of an entry point. I don't know if Nate would agree with that. Maybe Nate wouldn't, but I remember Eric as being like kind of the point source of like, hey, guys, check this cool world out. No. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, and then we've just, you know, we've just always played together, uh, and we finally started putting out music. We, used to, we played a lot of shows and stuff, but uh, it was always just um, kind of loose uh, until, until unfortunately, I, I moved away, which is kind of a frustrating thing. Your live rig is... is pretty great and i loved when you described it as a synced unsynced balance um so how did you kind of like figure out the pieces uh that you wanted to work with the most it's tough and it's different i kind of have a similar setup for a lot of stuff now um but i think it's it's tough because when you're when you're working like i feel like when i play live i should play stuff that I've put out, mm-hmm. which is, I think, a, a kind of starting point for like how you have to think about it, you know? And my stuff, when I make it, is really... I'm a total like laptop guy. So I, I right away did that thing that we were talking about earlier where it's like, well, how could I not have a laptop on stage? And then suddenly I was just like, I'm a lap- I make it all on a laptop. It'd be like if I recorded all my music on a guitar and then was like, but how can I play it on piano? Yeah, you know, yeah. like... Um, so from the get go, I knew I wanted to be able to play recordings without feeling like I was DJing, um, Mm. and feeling like I could take them in different directions if I wanted to. So it started out way more simplistic when I first started playing shows. Oh, and I first started this because I had been trying to figure out a way to play live for a long time. And this was kind of in that phase of my life I was talking about earlier. Um, and I was, I kept looking at different like kind of MIDI controllers and thinking about looking at different people's rigs and seeing how they did it and trying to understand kind of the other way people had invented the wheel, you know, mm. I feel like that's kind of the problem with like electronic musicians, unless you, you know, the modular world has kind of changed that a little bit. But if you make music on a computer, I think you're, you're always kind of reinventing the wheel for your own live instrument. Yeah. Like a guitar is just a guitar. Not just a guitar, but like you see it, you know what it is. Yeah. It does these things. Whereas for us, I think there's this, you know, first we have to build the instrument and then we have to learn how to play it. Hmm. Um, so I was trying to figure out what I wanted that instrument to be. Um, and all of a sudden I had this like realization that 
every time I looked at an option or a way to do it, all I could think about was what that thing couldn't do. Hmm. All I could think about was like, well, I wouldn't be able to do X, Y, and Z. So no. Um, and I just realized that that was a really shitty way to live your life. <laughs> <laughs> and that I had kind of been like shooting myself in the foot by doing that. So then I just vowed to like only look at what something could do and see if what those possibilities were, were like interesting enough to me and broad enough that I felt mm-hmm. like I could do it a bunch of different things with it. And then like right after I figured that out, they, Akai came out with this thing called the APC 40. Mm-hmm. Um, which is kind of just a, a catch-all Ableton controller. But I, I was just like, okay, this does a ton of shit. It's like, I can figure out how to make this work. So I just bought one. Um, and then I've been using that like ever since. Um, but so that was kind of the first big hurdle. And then, and then there's been this slow wrestling with kind of, you know, the nature of playing tracks, which is kind of... I feel like can get boring so quickly uh, because you're playing recordings, you know, which is cool. And there's a way to make it cool. But I think that for me, I need to feel like uh, I need to feel this like sense of possibility, you know, or I need to feel like I can like smear the paint around at any time, you know? Um, So I've just kind of been slowly making it more and more smearable, if that makes any sense. <laughs> and, then, and then when me and Amelia started playing, I just right away was like, I think if I got an OP1, that would be a cool other thing to have here. And mm-hmm. so the first rig was like, just the, our Ableton setup, which is like, that's pretty loose in and of itself at this point. It's like everything, it's like drums, bass, whatever everything else and then I can record her voice in a like a bunch of different ways into it. But right away it was just so our, my Ableton patch and then the OP1 and then um a Minotaur, like a Moog Minotaur. Yeah. Um and so I and I just wanted to focus on that. Like if I feel engaged, then I think the audience will feel engaged. You mm-hmm. know, then it won't I won't get any of these like you know, I won't feel like I'm checking my email and the audience won't, won't feel like I'm checking my email. <laughs> Um, yeah. So it was just, it was just that it was just chasing. It's all just chasing my own kind of ADD with it and making sure that at any point that I feel like I can do anything I want to do to the set at any, at any time. So, and I think that's where the kind of slowly when the OP came in, then I was like, Oh, having stuff that isn't tied to the clock is great. Because yeah. Ableton's kind of, you're kind of, you know, for better and for worse, there's this kind of dictator metronome happening the whole time. Um, and so I want and the minute I got the OP in, I was like, oh, I can, this can get fucked up. This is great. Uh, so then it, then it just became like, a, oh, what else would be fun? And, and then I think for the Made of Oak set, it was like, oh, I really want to be able to make, have like deep textural noisy transitions between stuff. And I had just gotten a micro granny, which is it? Do you have you ever played with one of those? They're just it's beautiful. I haven't played with it. I've lusted after it for like the better part of a year. They're so great. I love them. Hmm. Um, but yeah, so I got this micro granny, and that is just this like. Even if you know how it works, it's probably gonna like fuck up and do a lot of stuff you didn't want it to do or didn't predict that it would do. Um. Which is awesome. I love that. I love it when stuff surprises you a little bit. Like there's surprises within parameters, you know? Yeah. Um, and then I started, then I found Borderlands, which is this iPad app that I would highly recommend. That's just this beautiful kind of tactile granular synthesizer. I love like granulators are like just my favorite thing. Like they all sound weird and different and you can make them do all these different cool things. And, um, so having multiple different kinds of granulation going on uh, is always my favorite thing. Oh, and then I always have a KT granulator running, like that old like AU plugin. Have you oh, ever yeah. That? I don't know if it's on, I'm sure someone's got it on the internet. I think he made a better version of it, which I should go pay him for right now. <laughs> um, 
because I like I owe that guy money. Like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> he, he made this free granulator like forever ago, and it's I've had it in every Ableton patch I've ever used. Yeah. Um, but but yeah, that's that's kind of where it all started, and now I now I'm making the next. So like we're about to, we're hopefully finishing the next Sylvan record soon, and now all I can think about is like, oh, we have like. A, a more budget for me to like I could like make another whole unsynced thing for the Sylvan rig I could get that more out mm. um, and so that's been a really fun nerd zone designing yeah <laughs> thing. it's like if I spend like half my time on lines like just being like yeah but what kind of rig like what kind of weird modular rig could I make to have be like a crazy spaced out voice processor that doesn't do what Ableton does you know yeah um if one of the goals is to play some recorded music, I think that I I am enjoying that idea of having synced unsynced, you know, where there's there's a, a locked thing happening that's playing the composition that you want it to be playing. And then you don't have to think about that at all. And you can just think about painting over the top of it or painting the way it works. Does that make sense? Yeah, totally. It's controlled, I just feel like that's a really rigid. Yeah, right. Because I, I think that with especially laptop performance, but kind of any complicated electronics performance, even if that's instrumental, mm-hmm. um, I think that the minute you're thinking too much about the technology, you become like frustrating to watch. Mm. You know, like like nobody wants to watch somebody like nail a bunch of loop points you know like that's just not interesting yeah or at least it's not interesting to me i mean i I if i'm watching somebody worry about hitting something perfectly quantized and having it all every every, you know having it all work Mm -hmm. if that's if it working is like what the person on stage is concerned about like that's the most boring thing ever um because then it's like well just fucking play the tracks then like why are we why are we doing this yeah like what's the point you know um, I just I think a lot about that like and, and so anyway I, I love that's why I love like having this thing where I know I know the song is going to play through in this specific way and I can I can put my hand in there and screw up the way that's happening and change it but if I leave it alone it'll it'll make it to the end mm-hmm. or make it to a blue point or make it to whatever you know whatever however I set it up but like then I, my brain is just in like conductor mode, yeah. You know, and I and I, I free myself up to like do the things on stage that are fun for me to do. And I I think if I, and then it's like, well, if I'm having fun, then hopefully somebody's watching it is having fun. You know, yeah. If we're just talking about performance, that is. I mean, you know. Then again, I mean, I'm also just about to go do this set with Chris Rosenau at the Eau Claire's Fest that. I'm designing like a purely, you know, tabla rasa kind of improvisation patch for. So that'll probably be a whole, (laughs) I'll have like whole different things to say about that. Going back to Chris, uh, Rasa now. Um, yeah, I feel like I just found out about him and he's such an engaging artist. Oh my god, dude. Welcome welcome to an awesome world of like there's so much of his music that you can go listen to and yeah. uh he's just one of the most wonderful people. I'm so glad he's in my life. He I met him when I moved to Milwaukee and I was really into his band uh called Collections of Colonies of Bees and he was friends with the guys who I was in like my first like touring band with. Um, and he actually got us, he got, uh, us signed to polyvinyl. Like the first record deal I was ever on was because Chris, who I didn't even really know at the time, like drunkenly called the guy who ran polyvinyl was like, you should put this record out. Like, you know, it's like <laughs> he's responsible for like the whole thing. So then I didn't really, we never, we like knew each other as like other guys who were at shows all the time, you know, yeah. like I'm sure we all know we have plenty of those people in our life. Yeah. Um, 
But with him, it was a little more intimidating because I like loved his band, you know? Mm. So I'd go see them all the time because I could see him at the fucking Cactus Club, which was just like, it's still kind of like mind boggling to me. Like I moved there and there's like people just worked at bars who were in bands I loved, you know? Like, like I, I started doing door at the same bar that Davey Von Bolin bartended at, you know, from the Promise Ring. Like I thought that was like the coolest fucking, you know, that's, and it is the coolest thing ever. Um, but anyway, so we just kind of slowly became friends from liking each other's music. And when Cedar AV started playing shows, all the collections guys got super into it and would come to every show we played um, because there just weren't a ton of other like new guys doing weird music in Milwaukee at the time. Like mm-hmm. there was kind of a, a whole crew of guys that they all were friends with. Um, but we were kind of like the younger weird guys who showed up, or at least that's how it was in my mind. Maybe that's not how it actually was. <laughs> Um, but yeah, so we just became friends and, uh, me and Nate or me and Nate and Eric or me and Eric, different combinations that would open for him a lot. Uh, and yeah, we just kind of slowly became friends and I like loved his music and he was really complimentary about ours. And then, uh, there, the collections of colonies of bees piano player stopped playing with them after that first volcano choir record. Mm. or maybe right before it, somewhere around there. This guy is awesome, dude, Tom Winsack. Um, And he asked me if I wanted to play Rhodes in the band. And so then we kind of like really solidified our friendship and I played with them for a few years and was on their last record. And um, and yeah, we've just kind of, it's, you know, it's just kind of one of those slow build friendships. I've, but I've known him for probably 10 years, maybe. Mm. Um, and played with him in a bunch of different iterations and, like this thing that's happening this summer um, is happening exclusively because last year at Eau Claire's Fest, me and Amelia played and he played solo. <clears throat> and um, he called me up like a few days before the festival and was like, hey, I think they're going to have spaces where we, we could do a weird set if you wanted to go do like an improv set. And so I was like, yeah, absolutely. So we just called the guys who were running the festival and were like, Hey, can we do this? Can you give us the time? And they were like, yeah, sure. So we did this like (laughs) total improv set in a fucking geodesic dome, uh, on a hill where we just, I had, I made a patch like the day before and he just came with his like pedal board and his acoustic. And we just did this, like we just did 45 minutes of like straight improv. And it was so much fun. Yeah. Um, and then they asked, they were like, if you want to come back and do it like on a stage, like we'll pay you. And we were like, awesome. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Also, the only festival where that would ever happen. Like Eau Claire's Fest is just the fucking coolest festival. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, what, could you call the dudes that, who run Coachella and be like, hey, do you mind if me and my friend who's also playing do like a noise set <laughs> yeah, at like yeah. two on Sunday? They'd be like, go fuck off. Like, Quit bothering me. <laughs> but Eau Claire's, they let you do it and then they pay you to come back the next year. Like, it's awesome. Oh, that's really great. Yeah, so this is just another thing in like kind of a long friendship and, and kind of on and off collaboration. I just love his music. God, he's, he's got such a cool brain. Yeah. We were talking about earlier about like, it's not fun to watch someone try to nail a loop point. Hmm. Like, Chris does a lot of looping and does it, a lot of it improvised, but some of it's not improvised. And he never makes you feel like that. He always, you always feel like when he's using those, he's using them as a paintbrush. You know, it's like Meryl Garbus from Tune Yards. Like mm-hmm. she, you never think about it. You're never like, oh, it's kind of like a loop pedal set. Like you would never say that watching her. Yeah. You know, she's like a conductor of them and they like bend to her will. And that's how I feel when I watch Chris. Like uh, they, it never feels like uh, he's beholden to them. You know, like they always feel like they're, uh, they're helping him achieve a vision, you know, and it, it never feels like uncomfortable. It's great. So for your thing with Chris, uh, so you're thinking of using Black Party, um, and then I guess that that transitions well into the role of Monome. How did Monom enter into your life? 
Well, it's weird because I, I just lusted after one for a long time and could never afford one. Yeah. Um, and uh, I've, I've only, in the last bit, been able to, I found like a used one that I just love now. I found a 2012 uh, Walnut one that I'm super into. Yeah. Um, but the, it's weird. I feel like the community surrounding it breaks patterns for me. You know, I feel like um, it's, I think it's really easy as a composer or performer to feel like you're, especially if you tour, I think, but also not. I just, I think touring does this to me, where I feel like I make a lot of the same moves all the time. Mm. Uh, or I think about things in similar ways. I get into kind of like specific brain patterns. Um, and I think reading about, like what's happening in the monome world and trying out uh monome patches. I I also have been forever using a they somebody made a uh uh monomulator uh like an emulator patch for um the APC. Oh cool. So so I'd been using that for a long time. Uh but never in live performance. It was always like a way to change the way I was thinking about something. You know? Because there was this slight disconnect between my understanding of what it was doing, I was just uncomfortable with it enough hmm. that uh, it made me make different decisions than I would make on an instrument I was fluent in. You know, yeah. Like I, I would make different decisions than I would say playing bass, which is kind of my main instrument, uh, or Ableton, which I guess is actually my main instrument. Hmm. Um, uh, I would just make different decisions and I would do different things and I would be a little, it was, it was a little kind of walking on eggshellsy, you know? Um, and through that, I think every time I'd feel stuck, I would go do that, bring some sample or take out a mic and just kind of make something. Um, and those things then would, all, would almost always lead to being p- pieces of songs that I made later. Um, it was like this beautiful thing, like physical object and community of people that remind you that you can do anything that, and that that isn't a daunting thing, that it's just about being a human with a brain and using it as much as you can. I I think that that was kind of the biggest effect that it had on me. And then recently having one, uh, that goes with me everywhere now, um, it's, uh, it's it's just uh it's now that can be you know not a part of my like weird internet life or just this like habit breaking thing now it like it's sitting in front of my uh keyboard right now you know it's like there's my my computer keyboard and then the mono and then my interface and so um and even if even when it's just sitting there as like a reminder i think it like even if i'm it's sitting there and i'm you know playing keys next to it uh I think it's this like subliminal, like don't let yourself, don't lose the plot, you know, like don't stay in your own, don't make a box for yourself and then live in it. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I, th- I think that's kind of the biggest thing. That's, I think that's what I find refreshing about, you know, going to lines or, you know, versus anywhere else that I frequent, uh, is because I feel like when I read, even if I'm reading a, post there about something that I don't use or don't participate in. Yeah. Um, I think I, it's so great to, for me therapeutically to read through other people's thought patterns, you know, and, and, and figure out the way people think about the things that they do and the creative choices that they make. It's a really freeing, uh, thing for me. I think. I feel like that open source mentality is like, captured best in that community like the fact that rodrigo won't even accept donations exactly which like rodrigo if you're listening to this i will give you money (laughs) (laughs) dude i think we all would like it's it's insane how paramount his work is to uh expanding in this like strange direction what this you know grid of 128 buttons can do well, and just to see, I mean, even, you know, I've been a fan of theirs for a long time, uh, uh, Brian and Kelly's, that is. And so to, uh, 
to see the slow transition into modular has kind of been a really cool thing to witness. Uh, even though I don't to- like totally participate in it, like I'm mm-hmm. still a deep kind of computer based guy. Yeah. Um, it's, uh, it's just been cool to see the like natural, it's such a natural next step, you know, uh, there's this kind of, I, I hesitate to say like realness to it, but it's, it's interesting to see it move from this kind of, uh, it felt like a, a thing that was floating in the clouds, this like theoretical idea. And then to have it be like all this set of physical objects, it's like a really, it's kind of a, <laughs> there's something really beautiful about that. I was talking to Jonathan Glia from the forum um, like about a week and a half ago, just talking about like long pieces uh, and the uh, the kind of agreement that gets made there where it's like audience and performer are both embarking on that. And, and there's like this unspoken agreement that it's like you're going to have to suspend either judgment or disengagement uh, and I will try my hardest to make that worthwhile. Uh, and I'm going to be there with you building that thing alongside you. One thing I love about that, what you're talking about there, is I do think that there's something, there's a, there's a, there's a way to tell the audience that you're not going to let them down. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and I think some of that is body language, and I think a lot of it is musical choices. But I think if you can get up there and convey intent um, and then that first time if they give it to you if they give you you know like the patience to follow you to something yeah um, and you reward them that first time I think then you're good for like the rest of the night or probably for several years after that you know because <laughs> um, I, I think about that a lot I think about like how do you, so we're in this weird musical environment where there's just all this shit being thrown at you constantly and fucking streaming links and whatever, you know, like there's just this like glut of material out there to listen to. Mm. Um, and I think especially a big problem I have with streaming uh, is that I think when you're streaming music your brain is inherently in this dismissive place um as opposed to like you know if you would have i hate to be old guy here but like when i go to a record store and buy a record and take it back to my house and then put it on i think that my brain is in a much different and much more engaged and ready place with whatever that piece of music is going to be than it is if I'm hitting a streaming link or listening to on Spotify or whatever the fuck. Right. Yeah. I think you're, you're constantly seeing if you want to dip out, you know? Um, and, and I think that that's really taken a toll, especially on uh, weirder music. Uh, I think that music that takes a minute or that requires, uh, any degree of patience, I think is, uh, it's a tough time for that kind of music. But so I, I think a lot about like, well, how can we make it easier? You know, how can we like tell somebody from the minute they either see you start playing or listen are, are listening to your music, how can you convey intent like right away, you know, mm-hmm. or the whole time? Like whether or not they get what you're doing, that they get that it's like all of these choices are intentional. And no part of this is an accident. Or is underthought, you know? Mm. But so I think if you can, I think if you can kind of subvert that and like show somebody either physically or visually or with your music or ideally all three, if you do it in the right way and you, and you don't do it in a contrived way, if you just do it honestly, like if you mean, if you actually mean that, you know, then I think you, then people tend to follow you there, you know? Um, And I think Chris is just, he always means it. I've never seen him go through the motions at a show ever, you know, and I've played, I've probably seen him play and, or played on stage with him hundreds of times. And he just, it's always real for him, you know? Um, And I think that, that people can inherently read that. 
I think that's just a thing that you don't have to, watching it, you don't have to think about it. It's just, it's like a truth to you. So this friend of mine who uh, is a, uh, a chef at a restaurant, she opened up the, a restaurant, which was awesome. But I was having this conversation with her a long time ago where I was kind of like, you know, how do you do this? There's so many moving pieces here. You know, the food is one of them, which is a vision. But then there's also all the, you know, you picked out the flatware and like what all this stuff was going to, you know, there's all these decisions that got made, yeah. um, which, are not, which aren't your forte, you know? Mm. Um, and she said that when she decided she wanted to open a restaurant, the reason she wanted to open it was because she had this idea of a way somebody would feel when they walked into the restaurant and how it would feel to be there. So she just made every decision based on that feeling. You know what I mean? Like yeah. like she she knew what she wanted the vibe to be. She, she knew how she wanted you to be when you were in it. So anytime it was like, well, what do we do? Uh, what do we do about X, you know? And you'd be like, well, what decision could we make that would make somebody feel the way we want them to feel? Yeah. You know? And and then just follow that. Instead of being like, well, I don't know, I like these glasses. You know, like, <laughs> instead of doing that, uh, thinking about every part of it as, well, someone's going to experience this. Mm-hmm. So how do we make that experience? Like, everyone's going to be different, but how do we make it as dictated as possible? How do we make it, you know, every piece of it does the thing we want the overall thing to do? Yeah. Um, and I think about that all the time with shows. Like, I think that, you know, if you're going to play music for people, which is a lot of things, you know, it's, it's an intellectual exercise, it's an emotional exercise, but also, like, you are putting on a performance for people, you know, you are performing. Why wouldn't you want every part of what somebody sees to go towards that, the way you want them to feel? Totally. And it's something respectful too, of like their time. They came out, we need to give them everything we can. 100%. Yeah, I, I think it's all, it's all that. It's all you're, you're telling the audience they can trust you with their time. You know, and what a great thing to be able to do, and then to have some, and then have an uh, someone watching you give that trust to you. You know, I think that that's like one of the coolest exchanges we can have, and I think the more people do it, the more weirder music can get listened to. You know, like our whole last tour, if we got encores, we'd end it with the last song on our record, which live goes into a straight ahead, very loud noise drone. Mm. You know. So at the end of our show, it was like this loud white noise, basically, just like, and, you know, and everyone was with us. And every time we'd do it, I'd walk off stage and all I could think was like, I got that, I got people who, there's probably a ton of people who would never listen to experimental noise music, like to listen to it tonight and be into it. Because you just gave them the way they, like you told them they could trust you. And then you gave them the reference points to understand what it was trying to do, you know? For more on Nick, uh, you can look him up under his uh, producing name, Made of Oak. You can check out his work with Sylvan Esso. Also, to dive in deep with Cedar AV. Check out the online community lines at LLLLLLLL.co. That is 8Ls.co. And join the conversation. You can subscribe for future episodes of Sound and Process through iTunes or by following us here on SoundCloud. Thank you so much uh, for checking out these conversations. It, It means a ton. And I hope you enjoyed it. See you soon.